are grateful, as always, to the mercies that you have shown us between when we last met and now. You know the challenges each one of us faces. Please help us to look to you in trust and confidence to enable us to rise to those challenges that you put before us. Please give us the joy of seeing you at work in our lives and the patience when we don't see it to wait for the day when it will be clear. Please help us tonight as we turn again to your word. May your spirit be our teacher. May he preserve unity and peace among us. Please build us up that we may serve you more effectively. Thank you in your son's name. Amen. Okay. We're going to continue on in our study of theology proper, which is the study of the doctrine of God without distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the names of God and the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to go quickly through the names because the doctrine of the Trinity is always complex and challenging. Okay? There are a number of names for God in the Scripture. There's Elohim. That's a Hebrew term. It's usually translated God. Some Bibles actually write Elohim. There's El. El is the short form of Elohim. Elohim really means Els. El is God and Elohim means gods. And you say, why would God be called gods? Well, we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Then we've got the thing that's called the Tetragrammaton. You don't see this in this form in most Bibles. This is the covenant name of God. We think it's pronounced Yahweh, but it's normally rendered Lord in all caps or Jehovah. You remember we talked about this last term? And I told you that the word Jehovah comes from taking these consonants in German and then putting the vowels from Adonai in between them. So you get Yahweh, which brought over into English becomes Jehovah because in German the J sound has a Y sound and we're too stupid to know that. Okay? But anyway, if you see Jehovah in your Bible or you see Lord with all capital letters, that's the way the translators rendered the name Yahweh. Jews, by the way, at least unsaved Jews, will never say this name out loud. They consider it improper to pronounce it. Okay, the next title for the Lord is Adonai. And that basically means master. Okay? It's like the Greek word kurios, which is translated in the New Testament, Lord. You know, a servant could call his master Adonai in Hebrew. A Greek servant or employee or slave could call his boss Kurios. Now, these terms are often used to refer to God, but they're not technically names. They're titles, they're forms of address. The last one is Theos. That's where we get the word theology. Okay? Theos means God. That is the word that means God. 
and it's normally translated in your New Testament as God. Okay? Let's look at these in a little bit more detail. Elohim, the plural of El, means to be strong. So when God is called El, he's being called the strong one. When he's called Elohim, this is probably what theologians call a plural of majesty. By the way, all this is in the notes, which I think have arrived and during the break. If you don't have them, you can get them. Okay? The Hebrews and the people in the ancient Near East would sometimes take a name and turn it into a plural as a way of expressing respect for the person they were ad- addressing. That sounds weird to us. That'd be like us walking up to the boss and saying, bosses, I'm here to do your work. That makes no sense to us, but that's what they would do. Now, you should be aware that this term El, from which Elohim comes, is sometimes used to refer to to false gods, because false gods would claim to be strong powers. All right? Okay. Next, we come to Yahweh, which, again is generally rendered in all caps as Lord or Jehovah. The key verse for understanding this is Exodus 6.3, where the Lord is talking to Moses, and he said, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. That's another title of his that we'll see in a little while. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this term... Yahweh seems to come from the Hebrew verb meaning to be. So the term Yahweh seems to refer to the one whose nature it is to exist, which suggests his eternality. It also seems to be used in context where God is talking about his covenant, and the idea is that since God is the eternally existing God, when he makes a promise you can be confident that he will keep it because he'll always be around to keep it. All right? Now, the slight difficulty with this statement in Exodus 6.3 is that the term Lord appears in the book of Genesis. And you say, well, how could God say to Moses, I never made myself known by this name. I'm telling it to you the first time. But it appeared in Genesis in the accounts of Abraham, and Abraham lived 400 years before Moses. Okay? There are a couple of ways to answer that. One is to understand that when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he used this name not as if he was writing down a recording of the words that were spoken, but because he was using this name to express who God was in the context where he was talking about covenant. Does that make sense? It would be kind of like us talking about President Bush back when he was in the National Guard and say, back when President Bush was in the National Guard, well, there was never anybody named President Bush in the National Guard, but you know what I'm talking about, right? That's one possible explanation. The other possible explanation is that although God used this name beforehand, he didn't explain the significance of those with whom he used it. Okay? I'm inclined to go with the second one, but I think both of them are possible explanations. Okay? Now, Adonai, again, means lords or masters. It's a plural. 
like Elohim is a plural. Um, and again, it's not used exclusively for God. By the way, if a Jew is reading through his Hebrew Bible and he comes to the name Yahweh, he doesn't say Yahweh. He says Adonai because they would consider it improper to pronounce his name. And in a Jewish Bible, you'll actually have a little column on the side and everywhere where the name Yahweh appears in the text, over here it says, say Adonai, not Yahweh. Kind of interesting. Okay, kurios is the Greek equivalent of Adonai, although it's not a plural. The Greeks apparently didn't use that. It means Lord or Master, and it can refer to anybody in a position of authority. You know, there's that place in 1 Peter chapter 3 where it says Sarah called Abraham her Lord. Sarah was not a heretic. She wasn't saying that Abraham was God. She was saying, He's my Master. All right? And then there's theos. This is the most common word for God in Greek. Again, it's a generic term. It can be used to refer to false gods. Satan is even called the theos of this age, the god of this age. Okay? It's basically a label rather than a name, but it's used a lot, so we include it in the list of the names of God. Now, I'm going to hit this very fast. You can look this up in the notes if you want to go any further. There are a number of compound names that are used for God in the Old Testament. And you can see that several of them have El at the beginning and several of them have Yahweh at the beginning. Okay? The way the Hebrews would put together, if they say El Olam, it means the God who lasts forever. Okay? They just put an adjective after the name to describe what's going on. So El Shaddai is God Almighty. It's an emphasis on his power. El Elyon is the God Most High. This is used in the book of Daniel a lot. El Olam is the everlasting God. El Roy. You remember the story of Hagar? She goes out in the desert and she calls God the God who sees me. Okay, That's the seeing God. And there's Yahweh Yirah, which many of you have heard pronounced Yahweh Jireh. The J there comes from the same error of pronouncing German in English that J comes from in Jehovah. Okay? That means the Lord will provide or the Lord who is the provider. There's Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. And there Nisi is referring to a battle banner. The picture is that you're going into a fight and God is there carrying the flag with you, and he's the one who is going to enable you to have victory. There's Yahweh Shalom. Now, you all know the word Shalom, right? The God of peace, or the God who gives peace. Yahweh Sabaot. Okay? We tend to translate this... But, uh, how do we do it in English? I can't even remember how we do it in English. It appears in the book of James, and it's usually transliterated, not translated. It means the Lord of hosts. And hosts is just an ancient, or an old English word that means armies. Okay? This is the God of the armies. And then there was Yahweh Sidkenu. That comes from the U. The Nu is our and Tadeka is righteousness, so the Lord our righteousness. These are 
some of the major names of God that appear in the Old Testament. There may be a few others, but these are the big ones. Okay? Just want you to be aware of those. Now, we move on to the hard stuff, unless you have questions about the names of God. No questions? And the documents that you show us with the attributes where it really describes what attributes yes, are those yeah. just used for God? Well, these usually appear in particular contexts. They're not, it's not like this one is sprinkled all through the Bible. Exactly, but other religions use them to describe their own God. I'm not not aware that they do. I don't know any other religion that uses Hebrew as its main language. So we wouldn't see these forms. Mm -hmm. Now, lots of religions call their God the high God or the powerful God. You mentioned Adonai. Yeah. But they use that one particularly. Well, yeah, because that's a standard Semitic word. Okay. They also, I didn't put it up there, but, you know, Baal, the god Baal, mm-hmm. which is really Baal, that term is even used to describe the real god in the Old Testament. Okay. It's a generic term. You know, Baal isn't really the name of the god we call Baal. It's just another form of Lord. Can you give me an example in the New Testament? Uh, that, would be, that would be in the Old Testament. In, I, in the Old Testament. I can't off the top of my head, but we can look it up. Okay? Yeah, people are always shocked when they hear that. Okay? But again, it's important to remember that terms like El and even Elohim are not really names. They're descriptions. And the same would be true of, of Baal. Okay? Okay. Let's talk about the Trinity. I'm going to give you a quick definition and then we're going to look at some of the evidence for the Trinity. And before we go through this, please recognize that I can't answer all your questions on this doctrine. Okay, I will present it to you as clearly as I can. I think our understanding is the only understanding that makes sense. But because God is holy, and holy basically means different, He's so different than anything else we know of that the fact that we can't comprehend what he is in all aspects really isn't surprising. Okay? But let's see how it goes. This is one definition. While God is one in essence, within that essence there are three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are distinct yet equal each of whom completely possesses the essence and attributes of God and who are united as one indivisible God. This we call the Trinity. It's tough, isn't it? But let's see. Let's see where the evidence comes from. Now, before we move forward, let me just lay on the table some errors in our thinking that we should avoid. Okay? We want to avoid the idea of tritheism. Tritheism is the idea that there are three gods and they're completely distinct. Okay? Like Baal, Ashtoreth, and uh, Molech. Okay? The Canaanites believed in a multiplicity of gods and they had no concept that these gods shared any essence in any way. Okay? The doctrine of the Trinity is not tritheism. Okay? It's not three separate gods. It's three persons in one essence 
who are distinguishable as far as their personality, but not distinguishable as far as their essence or attributes. Okay? It's one of these things where it's easier to say what's not true than what is true. Okay? Pat? No. Okay. That's fine. Okay. The second thing we want to avoid is modalism or Sabellianism. Modalism is the idea that there's only one God who takes three different forms at different points in history. You know, it's one person with three different hats. Okay? That is not what the doctrine of the Trinity states either. Okay, and then there is Arianism. Arianism states that the Son and the Holy Spirit are subordinate to God in essence. They are not really fully God. And radical Arianism teaches that Christ was created, that he is not eternal, and that he is not divine. Okay? Mormonism would probably fall into that. It's a form of a form of Arianism. Yeah. There there are a lot of religions that do that actually. Good. Okay. Now let's look at some of the evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. That clock is dead, isn't it? I keep on looking at that and thinking, boy, we've got lots of time. Okay. In Genesis one one, the very first verse of the Bible. The name used for God, or the label, is Elohim. Now, it's a plural. Does that prove that God is a trinity? I put three question marks up here because I don't think that it really does. It might give us a hint of evidence, but I don't think that it does. Now, in Genesis 1-2, the spirit is distinguished from God, right? Remember that verse? It says... The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That phrase, the Spirit of God, seems to distinguish between the Spirit and God. Okay? Eh, maybe. Maybe. All right. Genesis 1.26. I think this is a big one. Then God said... Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I left out the birds. Okay? Now, I'm inclined to take the us here as significant. All right? And I would take it as significant for a number of reasons. First of all, it's there grammatically. But secondly, when God says, let us make man in our image, he doesn't make one being. He makes two. Okay? And it seems that there's a hint there that there are multiple persons within the Godhead. Yes? That wouldn't be a royal we? Okay, well, some people would say it would be. A A royal we. You know, if God is Elohim, if we call God gods, then could God be just turning around and saying gods because that's the way people address him? Possible. Okay? The strongest evidence for the Trinity comes from the New Testament. But what I want you to see is that there's a hint in the Old Testament. Okay, Genesis 11:7 does the same thing. Now, in Genesis 16... I don't think I mean 78 there. I don't know what I did. Um, I must have hit the wrong keys. Okay. 
um, Hagar has an encounter with the angel and Yahweh. Let's see. Yeah. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Now, the angel seems to be speaking of Yahweh as a different person, and many people believe that the angel of the Lord is Christ pre-incarnate. Okay? Again... A hint. Okay, I might put a question mark next to that one. All right, in Genesis 18, we've got three angels that come and warn Abraham of the coming destruction of Sodom. And if you read through that story, you get the impression that at least one of them is God, don't you? Okay, it's in, it's it's a it you're you're what's the word? You're inclined to think that you've actually got the three persons of the Trinity. Appearing in some form, yeah. It's not certain, but yeah, it's not clear, is it? It really does seem like Abraham is distinctly talking to one of them. Mm-hmm. That's right. Some, now, some people would say that it's the three persons of the Trinity. Others would say that only one of them seems to be divine. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think it's clear that one of them is. I'm not sure about the three. Okay. And we could look at these passages and chew on them, but I don't think uh, we would settle anything necessarily. Now, here's a very interesting one. The Jews love to cite Deuteronomy 6.4 as proof of the unity of God, and we don't deny the unity of God. Okay, The doctrine Trinity, that word, comes from tri-unity. Okay? Three persons in one God. But... Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one. That word one is echad. And echad is used everywhere else in the Old Testament to describe a composite unity, like a bunch of grapes or a bunch of soldiers that make up a platoon or something like that. That's a very interesting one, isn't it? Okay. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord... Now, with the benefit of other passages, we know that the second Lord in this statement is Christ, right? If this is Christ, and if, with the benefit of what we understand from the New Testament, we understand that Christ is divine, then Psalm 110 is recording a conversation between what seems to be the Father and the Son. Can you see that? So that seems to be a hint of what's going on. Isaiah 7:14, the very name Emmanuel means God with us. And that would would serve again as a suggestion in the Old Testament that in Psalm 1:10 Messiah is divine, and if Messiah is divine in Psalm 1:10, then there's evidence of at least two persons in the Trinity. Okay, in Isaiah 48, verse 16, we see the Messiah, Yahweh, and the Spirit all mentioned together in one verse. 
near to me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that I was, I was there, and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Okay, that seems to be Messiah speaking. So Messiah is talking about Yahweh, Lord God is Yahweh, and His Spirit. So we seem to have all three persons of the Trinity there. Okay, Isaiah 61, another passage. If we understand the Messiah to be divine, that shows the Spirit and the Messiah. The Spirit of, of how does it go? The Spirit of God is upon me to preach good news. Okay, Christ quoted this. It's about him, and he says, the Spirit of God is upon me. So we seem to have the Messiah and the Holy Spirit there. Okay. Now, the conclusion that I think is best for us to draw from this evidence is that the Old Testament allows for the possibility of the Trinity and hints at it occasionally, but n does not teach it directly. Okay? I think that's the best way to look at the evidence. Question? Mary? Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Now, that's a great question. I'm not sure of the answer to that question, um, but there are a lot of things that God shrouded, if you will, and revealed a little bit in early times and gave more information about as it came on. And I think what we see is that it's in the ministry of Christ that we see the three persons of the Trinity carrying out their separate roles most visibly. The Father sends the Son. The Son says, when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. Now, he goes back to be with the Father. He serves as the high priest, interceding for us before the Father, while the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. And you can see all of those functions at work. Um, why he didn't reveal it earlier, I really don't know. But... You know, there's a proverb that says it is the glory of a man to search a thing out and the glory of God to conceal it. And I think one of the things that God did in the Old Testament was put hints of information there kind of as, uh, it's sort of like buried treasure. And when you come to the New Testament and a little more information is revealed, you go back and you say, aha, that was there all the time, like the prophecies of the coming of Christ. And they serve as confirmations of what has now been revealed and shown. Maybe that's part of the reason. Okay, let's look at the New Testament evidence for the Trinity. Okay. If we were to look at 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, to it says that God is one. Let's take a look at that. Therefore, concerning the, thing, the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, 
that there is no other God but one, for even if there are so-called gods, by the way, that's that word theos, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, that's the word kurios, see it? Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things and for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Now, Paul states that there's only one God, but with that statement that there's only one God, he also mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? He doesn't seem to see any contradiction between the idea that God is one, and yet there's more than one person in God. We'd see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Um... There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, you see there the three persons of the Trinity, and yet when Paul says there's one God, I think he's, more, I think he's saying more than that there's just one Father. I think he's referring to the unity of God and at the same time acknowledging the three persons in the Trinity. Okay? Now let's keep on looking at the evidence and we'll see how it stacks up. Okay? Now I'm going to make a bunch of quick statements here that you really don't need proof for because you've seen this before. We're not going to look at all these passages. There are clear statements in Scripture that Christ is divine. Right? You know that. There are clear, clear statements in Scripture that the Word, which is another way of referring to Him, is divine. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is that category of being. Okay? John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, He could be referring to their oneness in their commitment to executing the plan of salvation. Okay, that is a possibility. But I think he's talking about more. I think he's talking about essence. And the Jews thought he was talking about Yes, more. okay, <laughs> good. Yeah, the Jews were very upset by what he said. They understood it as essence. Okay, there are clear statements in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is divine. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church, Peter says, you have... Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Okay? And he's calling the Holy Spirit God. He's saying he is divine. Okay? Same place. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Now, you can't lie to some impersonal essence, can you? You can only lie to a person. A person having personality. So, the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, we don't generally have any problem with the idea that the Son is a person, right? That's perfectly obvious to us. And we don't have any problem with the idea that the Father is a person. But some people have problem with the idea that the Holy Spirit is a person. There's more evidence for the personality of the Holy Spirit than what we're going to look at right now. But I want to lay out for you the basics of the concept behind this. Okay. The Son, in John chapter 14, says, I will ask the Father and he will send to you the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now there we clearly have the three persons spoken of 
And it's not Jesus saying, when I go back to heaven, I'm going to put on my Father's hat and then I'm going to take off my Father's hat and put on my Holy Spirit hat and fly back down to earth. That's not what he's saying, right? He's distinguishing between the three persons. Okay. In the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus tells us to baptize them in the name, and that's a singular word in Greek, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three persons have one name. Okay? Now, he's not talking about Bill or Harry or Joe. In Hebrew thinking, when they use the word name, it often refers to the essence of the thing that you're talking about. Okay? So he's saying, baptize them in the name of the triune God. Okay? It's, it's a clear statement, I think, of the fact that the three persons in the Godhead share one essence. There's one name. Okay? And it's stated by one of the persons in the Godhead. Yes. Okay. In Mark 1.11, in Matthew 11, in Romans 8.26, we see conversations between the three persons. Okay? And you can look those up on your own because we're running awfully late. But there are such conversations in Scripture where you can see the persons distinguished. Okay? A similar thing is in the baptism of Jesus. Okay? We've got Jesus in the water. We've got the Father from heaven saying, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And we have a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of, the dove, of a dove. I think the Holy Spirit did that on purpose because the Holy Spirit is not a dove, right? I think he made a physical manifestation of his presence and Matthew told us what it means to give us evidence of the Trinity. Okay. Um, Luke one thirty-five. the three persons work together. What does that say? I can never keep all these in my head. Thank God for PowerPoint and notes. Okay, Luke 1.35. Okay. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest, that's the most high God, will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. We've got the Father the Holy Spirit, and the Son, all clearly spoken of in one place, acting together to carry out the divine plan, doing things that are miraculous and could not be done by anybody but God. And they're distinguished. Okay? Now, what's the conclusion from this? The New, New Testament attributes deity and divine attributes to all three persons of the Trinity. Their identities are distinct and their roles are distinct, but all that, though they are three different persons, they share one essence. Okay? That seems to be what Scripture is teaching. That's where the evidence pushes us. If you, if you try to say that they're distinct and they don't share one essence, you've got problems with some of the statements. If you try to say that they're all the same God wearing different hats, you have problems with some of the statements. And so we're kind of boxed in 
with these ideas, and that's really where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. Okay? Now, what is, when is the first use of the word Trinity? Uh, I, I honestly don't know. That's a great question, and I can't answer it. I, I would guess it would be in the second or third century, actually. Because it, it took the church a long time to thrash these things out. I, I think people understood them, basically, early. But as far as having a way to converse about them and, and getting together and saying, this is what we all agree on, that took time. Okay, I'm not very good at church history. I should probably find out the answer to that question. Okay, thinking about the Trinity. Let's just go over these ideas a little bit more, and then we will break. Okay? God has only one essence. He's not a composite or assembled being. He is not a bunch of Lego blocks put together. You can't break the pieces apart. Okay? There's only one essence. That essence exists in three distinct persons. The Son can talk to the Father about the Holy Spirit just like I can talk to my wife about my son. Now, the three of us don't share one essence. We do share one nature, right? We're all human, but we don't share one essence. What's different about God is that the three persons in the Trinity share not only a common nature and common attributes, but a common essence. Okay? And, you know, again... I don't think we should expect to be able to find something that's like God. He is so incredibly unique. You know, he's the only self-existent, uncaused cause there is. So why should we think that we can find an analogy? We'll, we'll talk about analogies in a little bit. Okay. Each of the three persons possesses the undivided essence of divinity. It's not like when the Holy Spirit is down on earth, a piece of God isn't in heaven, or Jesus is missing something, or the Father is missing something. They all possess the same essence. Don't ask me how that works. I have no idea. But I believe it with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Okay. Now here's a big one. These three persons who are equal in dignity have voluntary, voluntarily entered into a relationship of functional subordination. They have agreed to set up a hierarchy. Now, the purpose of the hierarchy is not to express who's better and who's worse. It's to provide order and structure in the carrying out of the plan of redemption and all the other things that God has planned. The Father sends the Son. And when the Son has done his work on earth, he sends the Holy Spirit. Now, functionally, the Son and the Holy Spirit are under the authority of the Father. But it's only functional, and it's only voluntary. And if you want to think of a sort of an illustration, think of the way the human family is set up. By God's design, the husband is the head, and the wife is under the husband's authority. That doesn't mean the husband is better than the wife. It means that God wants order, and to have order, somebody's got to be in charge. And God has determined that it will be the man, and the children are under them. Okay? That's functional subordination. Sue, were you going to ask something? Okay. All right, a little bit more. 
some theologians David, see. Yes. You explain. You explained this yesterday at our Bible study. Okay. And I didn't get the, the difference. I, I understand what functional subordination is, but you always describe essential subordination. Okay. Essential. Well. Okay. Essential. That's good. The, the contrast is helpful. Okay. In the creation, God has set up not only functional subordination, which, for example, we have in the family, but also essential subordination. Now, think what God did. God created the physical universe. He created the earth. He put the plants and the animals on the earth, and then he created man, and he said, man, your job is to take care of this planet and its inhabitants, you know, animal, mineral, vegetable, whatever they may be, as my agent. Now, there is essential subordination in the sense that God is on top. He is greater in essence and different in essence than us. Then come human beings, and human beings are this funny bridge. Okay, We have physical existence, but we also have spirits that are capable of communion with God. That makes us a bridge between the physical world and God. So we've got God, we've got man, and we've got the physical world underneath us. Now that is essential subordination because it has to do with differences in essence, right? God is greater in essence than we are. We are greater in essence than the physical world is and the physical world is less in essence than we are. Can you see it? Now con compare the two, okay? I'm not saying that there's essential subordination in God, I'm saying that there's functional subordination. Right? Well, okay, the angels come underneath God, and then comes man, and then comes the creation. But what's interesting is one day the angels and man are going to be flipped because there are fallen angels who will never submit to the authority of God, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that one day we will judge angels. So at least in some way, there's going to be an inversion of that. I don't know that we'll rule over the holy angels. Good question. Okay, Gary, thank you for bringing that up because that's very helpful. Okay. Some theologians see something that they call an, or, an order of subsistence in the Trinity. Those come from the doctrines of the eternal generation of the Son and the eternal procession of the Spirit. I can talk about that during the break with anybody who wants to. I do not believe these doctrines. Okay. These have some history in the Christian church. Some people believe them. Some people have not believed them. They're not considered to be articles of the faith. Eternal generation of the Son says that somehow the Son eternally came from the Father, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. And the eternal procession of the Spirit says that somehow the Spirit eternally came from the Son and the Father. And I think the passages that are used to support these doctrines can be understood much more simply in another way. Okay? And I'm not going to go into that because, because of time, but if any of you want to talk about it, we can, and it's in your notes. Okay? Last comment. The Trinity is completely unique and beyond human comprehension, but that doesn't mean that it's illogical or untrue. Okay? You know, if you've studied electricity and magnetism, you study things and you say, how can an electromagnetic wave propagate through empty space? It makes absolutely no sense. But it actually, it does make sense. It's just unlike anything that you've run into before. 
you know, Hamlet said, there is more in heaven and earth than in your philosophy. And I think he was basically saying is that the human mind is not capable of comprehending everything, but that doesn't mean that things we can't comprehend are untrue. All right? Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk briefly about illustrations of the Trinity, and then we'll move on into uh, soteriology. Okay? That clock doesn't work. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs>